This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me recording from New Jersey for a change. Uh, we stepped out of Brooklyn for a minute. Same podcast, though, uh, wherever we recorded. Delighted to have Kurt Anderson back on the show. Welcome back, Kurt. Delighted to be back. You were talking to us last, uh, almost four years ago, uh, October 2016. We talked a lot about Donald Trump then. I think it'll come up again today. You mean candidate Donald Trump? Yes, yes that was still when we kind of joked about Donald Trump, yeah. although it was a I think we stopped joking. joking by then, or at least I, 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 I didn't, uh, I, I wasn't, I never thought it was a slam dunk. <laughs> no, but there was still, as, you, as we all recall, there was a conventional wisdom that this could not happen. Sure. And then it did. Sure. Um, I think that ties into what we're actually going to spend most of our time talking about today, which is your new book, Evil Geniuses. Um, you want to just start by telling us who the evil geniuses are? Well, the evil geniuses are some of the people who were part of the process of doing this amazing paradigm shift uh, in America and, and this amazing transformation of the norms and rules and laws that govern our political economy uh, 40 and 50 years ago. America was one way and had been going that way, certainly since the New Deal. And then suddenly around 1980, it all changed. And and so that that's the story of how that happened and how the culture uh, allowed that to happen and how we were we all changed our minds or enough of us to change the system. But but I didn't start out calling it evil geniuses. I, I started out writing this history, and then I realized that it was a brilliant, masterminded, uh, strategic change. And there were these guys, and they were, are all guys, um, who starting in 1970, before I was when I was a child still, and 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 uh, thought, oh, you know, the we're we're living in a liberal, progressive time, and there would be changes and conservative interregnums, but this is basically irreversible where we've gone. And it certainly wasn't. And I didn't, you know, 1980, yeah, Ronald Reagan's elected, but I hadn't realized what was behind that, both, you know, for a decade of work and strategizing beforehand and and all that it meant other than this guy was president. So it's that story of how of how uh, a friend of mine said, well, you wrote Fantasyland about how magical thinking and delusion and falsehoods has been part of America forever and and then became acute in the last few decades. And now you've written Evil Geniuses about how these rational individuals uh, changed the 
politics and economics and 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 how that uh, interconnects with technology and where we are now. So it's it's a it's really a two volume the fucking of America. Yeah, um, I, I was I was going to say they were the, the t- your your previous book Fantasyland is sort of in conversation with this book. That's the more yeah. that's the less sweary way of <laughs> yes, putting it. Exactly. Uh, and then the more sweary way is things are fucked up. Here's how we got here. Yeah, and and one and one as Fantasyland was we got here. It was a chronic condition, part of America. We 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 kept it at bay and managed it for centuries, and then we didn't. This is uh, we were doing well. Uh, we, we'd gotten the, the, the arc of progress had been consistent for more than a century. And then these guys decided, no, <laughs> we're taking it back. We're rolling back the New Deal and fuck you. So if you, if you look around at the world today and you say, setting aside Donald Trump for a second, what are the conditions that allowed us to uh, elect Donald Trump? Some happened sort of organically, sort of Americans did it of their own accord or, or, or through lack of any accord. Uh, and then some of it is the premise of your book now is there are specific people who push to get us to this place. Um, they're academics, they're conservative uh, so we're, we're, we're activists, uh, politicians, conspired to get us here through changing laws, through changing mores. Um, so is there, I mean, I was looking, do you have a roster of them? I mean, there's people like Robert Bork, yeah. uh, David Horowitz, well, you know, it's, there's it's a lot funny. of legal scholars. I, I should probably have a roster. I should have had a dramatist persona that I would publish at the end of the book, maybe at the beginning. But having not done that, I, I actually put it together just for you. Because figuring, you, since you're one of my first uh, interviews about this book, I figured you might. On your practice round, yeah. Um, no, not exactly. <laughs> um, you're opening a new haven, maybe. There you go. But um uh, no, I mean Milton Friedman is certainly one one of them, and and th- there could be dozens. But I but uh, a do- let's say a dozen. Milton Friedman, uh, Justice Lewis Powell, the Supreme Court before just before he was Justice Lewis Powell. Um, certainly Ronald Reagan is one of them. Although I and I talk about him, and he was clearly important to this transition. Yeah, I guess he counts as an evil genius. Uh, both Koch brothers, especially uh, the living one, Charles, various. Uh, other right-wing billionaires uh, who are somewhat less known, like Joseph Coors and uh, Richard Mellon Scaife and yep. so forth. The guys, the two guys um, who started the Heritage Foundation, the the, the incredibly influential right-wing um, uh, think tank in Washington that was was born in the 70s. Robert Bork, you know, you mentioned Robert Bork. I knew him. We know him as the as the conservative uh, justice who didn't become a conservative, who didn't become a justice on the Supreme right. Court. In 1987, I hadn't realized as I hadn't realized so many things until I spent a couple of years reading and researching for this book, how important he was in many ways. I knew that he was one of the originalists, one of the people who got us, who was arguing to to just take the words of the Constitution as as they were written in whenever, either 1780s or 1860s or whenever. Yep. Don't don't update them. But I, I didn't know how what a pivotal, the pivotal figure he was in reshaping and shifting uh, our judicial understanding and general understanding in this country of what antitrust law is and should be and is meant to do. So he was definitely one of them, along with Antonin Scalia. Um, Robert Bartley, the um, as, a, as a media fellow, you know, of course, who he is. He was the editorial page editor of the Wall Street Journal in the 1970s and 80s and beyond, and was an incredibly important character in this story, along with his uh, chief flying monkey, uh, Jude Winiski. 
Um, Irving Kristol, uh, the former socialist who also was part of his particular uh, Wall Street Journal cabal and, and the, the first neoconservative, Arthur Laffer, uh, Charles Murray, the guys, people who started the Federalist Society, Alan Greenspan, Mike Milken, Rush Limbaugh, Grover Norquist, Rupert Murdoch. I could go on, but there's your dirty dozen. And I think a lot of people, and myself included, sort of said, I sort of know those names and I have a sense of sort of what they're up to. And it strikes me that there's some combination of self-interest and then just sort of a natural pivot. We had the 60s and 70s and they were liberal and progressive. And then we had a reaction to the right and it'll just sort of go back and forth. And you're arguing, no, 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 they they pushed it all the way over to one edge and we're kind of stuck here unless we really do something about that, it. It won't happen it. organically. Yeah, that's that's it in a nutshell. I mean, you know, we had had in the late 40s and 50s a conservative course correction in what had come out of the New Deal and the Depression. And it was a, it was a conservative course correction. And there was a pause in the great and long march of progress, social and economic progress, that uh, the, the rest of the rich world uh, at various times have made course corrections too. And so, but then we went on, and and the fifties ended, and 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 the sixties and seventies continued down that you know New Deal ex- extended New Deal path of 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 social and economic progress, and everything. One of my points is everything was working well, right? We we had a a, a prosperous, well functioning uh, political economy in which most people felt like, yeah, this is going okay, and and all of the lines of productivity and and economic growth were in sync with rising median incomes for, and, 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 and the sharing of that. And then instead of having a momentary 70s, 80s, oh, course correction, uh, let's, let's, we've, we've gone too far, government is doing things it shouldn't do or doesn't do well, let's course correct. Yes, exactly, as you say, the, the, this mobilized uh, confederacy of 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 the right of the economic right got together and said, "Well, we, we, this worked better than we ever imagined right away in the decade of the '70s and '80s. Let's keep going. Let's never let it go. This has worked so well for us to create a new oligarchic American system. Let's just do that." And and that's what happened. And and so. You know, people talk a lot about historical cycles and whether they last 15 years or 30 years or whatever. And it seems to me, in this case, it, it's been a 50-year cycle that that in the 30s, starting after the crash of 29 and what happened uh, in the 30s and, and, and the New Deal that was born of the Depression, that period was an extension of what had been happening before with the progressive movement and antitrust law and the rest. But that lasted for 50 years until it was stopped and in many ways rolled back around 1980. And now maybe, we, if, if there are indeed cycles, we, we've reached the end of that, that conservative, that, I don't even want to call it conservative, that dysfunctional, decadent version of free market American capitalism that has um, uh, obtained for the last 40 years. So your your book, uh, you finished it recently enough that you were able to sort of uh, reference uh, the pandemic and George Floyd. Do you think the sort of what we've seen going on in this country this spring, this summer, sort of the, the total failure of government, uh, real failure of, of Americans to act sort of in a unified way, even and to, to not even pay attention to their own self-interest, to sort of be idiotic about it, do you think that's a signal that okay, this thing will reverse itself and we can reverse itself and that's the time to do it? Or this is actually, 
the system's actually working the way these folks wanted it to work, and we're kind of stuck here and we can't move out of it. Well, oh, there's a the third option, which is the hopeful one, is that it 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 will show that we do indeed need a robust, effective government to do certain things, like deal with our public health and 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 share the wealth properly and have a healthcare system that isn't this Fakakta Rube Goldberg machine unlike any other in the world and all the rest. So, I, you know, it, 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 as I wrote in Fantasyland, there's a lot of craziness and uh, a lot of, I will believe what I want. Don't tell, don't talk to me about science. Don't talk to me about expertise. I'll just believe what I want. That's a real problem. And that's not going anywhere. And that is what it is. And people who, who shoot up people who tell them to wear a mask are residents of Fantasyland. But this other thing, and what I write about in Evil Geniuses, can be fixed. It was, it was it, my argument, my, ver, my, my case is that it was not bad. It was working pretty well. 1976 was the, the maximum economic equality that America probably had ever had. And then they decided, nah, too equal. We'll make it less and less equal by a means of a thousand small cuts and a few big cuts. But um, the, conven so I, the conventional I, wisdom slash uh, uh, talk about nostalgia in a second, but sort of my hazy memory of the '70s and yeah. the one that that sort of gets brought up now when we talk about it is, oh, that's the that's the malaise decade, mm. that's oil shocks and people waiting in line for gas and yeah. everything sort of falls apart. Um, and to hear it recast is like, no, those were those were the good old days. Uh, is striking. Well, you know, they were. It was the it was the, the final moment of the good old days. And, and, and there were some bad things, some uncomfortable, discomforting, discombobulating things like crazily high inflation and the oil crisis. And uh, those are the main ones. Of course, we also definitively lost the Vietnam War and uh, some other things that, that were, 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 were bad for the mood of America. And, and there was this general post-60s kind of hangover right. uh, sense. But... In if you, you look now, or or you looked even twenty years later, and you saw the all of these economic trend lines changing, which is to say, growth continued. I mean, economic growth got tottery for a while and not so good, and and we had the problems of of the Rust Belt and of the steel industry imploding and uh, Detroit auto industry being challenged by foreign car makers, all those things. But it wasn't the depression. It wasn't the pandemic. It was some problems, right? And those problems were used and exploited by this motivated economic right to to exploit, and they did brilliantly. So, so, but it it was it was it was pretty good, and and I would argue we di we didn't know uh, quite how good we had it. And part of my mission with this book is to explain to people like me who didn't were there but didn't quite realize what had happened and the immensity of it and younger people who have only lived in in this new raw deal era where after the change when 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 only the rich get richer and yeah i think the main your main argument when you're talking about the good old days versus now is is sort of income distribution wealth inequality the idea that that an average american gets paid so much less than the person they work for uh that that those those sort of markers that's what mm. you're generally Some talking of them, about yeah yeah I mean, th those markers, as well as I mean, insecure or rather, uh, inequality is the is the is a great metric, and in, in in all of its ways, and it shows it. But there's also 
which I didn't really realize, and again, until I did the work, is the insecurity of, of, of so many, most Americans, economic insecurity, and, and uh, whether it's not having a pension, which were standard in, for private employers to provide until then, right? And healthcare. So it's not just inequality. It's, my God, I, nobody has my back. I'm on my own. It's this, it's this crazily extreme. Uh, Your pension you know, is replaced with a 401k, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, we're supposed to, right. Right. Exactly. And so it, it's not just inequality. It is more far-reaching in, in how the system was was re-geared and re-engineered to really only be good for the well-to-do. And how do you, you, you can define that as the 1%, the 10%, the 20%, whatever, however you wish to do so. But it really is, for the vast majority of Americans, the system was uh, re-engineered to take from them and, and give to the rich. Now, that happened in all kinds of different ways. And it happened a little bit in the rest of the rich world. I'm not saying it only happened in America. But again, as I do in this book, compare the United States to the rest of the rich world. We're, we're, as in so many ways, as we are in the fantasy land, magical thinking ways, we are outliers. Um, there's a couple things in the book that I didn't expect to see when I opened it up. Uh, one is, is a, a long discussion about antitrust law. Mm. Uh, and how we got here, yeah. and it's particularly interesting to yeah. read it a week after the the big tech hearings, yeah. which you know I went into thinking these will demonstrate why nothing will change, and yeah. I left thinking the same way. Yeah. Um, did the people who've been pushing to sort of get antitrust law to the point of where it is, when they look around and see Google and Facebook and Amazon and total domination of the internet in that space, is that what they wanted as well? Well, they obviously, when, when, when Robert Bork and, and the, his University of Chicago Confederates were writing starting in the 50s and 60s and then the 70s, they obviously didn't foresee, you know, these true monopolies necessarily right. arising as a result of the way they changed everything. But here we are. They were, at the beginning, as in all these ways they changed things, they were fighting the, the, the antitrust uh, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission and 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 the whole antitrust enforcement apparatus had become really annoying if you ran a big business, and so they were just trying to get it to be less aggressive and less annoying, and they were made. I think, in, as in so many ways, they were successful beyond their dreams, and so here we are with 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 true monopolies in the case of of Google and 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 Facebook certainly, um, you know, and and. Amazon and Netflix are different animals in that sense. But so they certainly allowed it to happen. And, and what's so interesting, and I write about it in Evil Geniuses, is, is you know, these, these the Google and, as, as you know, I mean, Google and, and Facebook and all of these colossi, uh, which got going in the late 90s and early 2000s, wouldn't have happened had the federal government not brought uh, the last great antitrust action against Microsoft to prevent it from it from being the entrepreneur killing competition killing um, colossus uh, as the internet uh, came to be so and they 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 came up not because the government won that suit right they in theory they were supposed they were supposed to have broken up Microsoft that didn't happen but in the way Microsoft people tell it today is well what happened was we were just sort of scared and distracted from doing anything, and that's why we didn't see phones, and that's why we missed right. the internet. And and maybe maybe they did, and maybe they didn't. Um, I mean, one of 
this will get pretty. I mean, it's way wonkier than I can certainly do on, on this podcast. <laughs> well, but, yeah. but one of the one of the ideas you talk about in the antitrust section is the, is pushing the idea that that antitrust now is uh, sort of decide when people litigate antitrust. The main the idea they're talking about is does this harm the consumer? Does it result in lower prices? If it results in lower prices, it must be a good thing. And basically, you can be as big as you want as long as you're not charging the consumer more. And that sort of comes to the head with the internet, right? Where everything is free. Um, quote, or very quote unquote, free. or very yeah. cheap, and if you're a consumer yeah. and not thinking about it, it all seems pretty good. It seems yeah. like these are benevolent yeah. uh, uh, dictators, and and, yeah. and and should go forward. Now you're starting to also see conservatives say, "Well, maybe actually Google's not good if it prevents me from doing a racist screed on YouTube uh, yeah. or whatever." And, and so we're gonna we're gonna attack it that way. But it seems difficult for them to to argue economically based on what they've already set up. Well, but but I'm you know again I I look for glimmers of hope and 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 green shoots everywhere and and the last few years entirely apart from the the uh, content questions which are connected to but not the focus of my my arguments here um, there has been on the right and the middle and as well as the left you know some uh, uh, a kind of revival of antitrust feeling toward these, these monopolies, toward exactly the kinds of companies and corporations, these new species of corporations that arose at the end of the 19th century, that the whole antitrust idea was invented in America that the rest of the world then copied to fight against and to scrutinize and to uh, enforce uh, when they're not playing by the rules of the road that we want, the truly competitive economy that we want. So I, 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 I see some, I see some revival of, of, uh, of a willingness to, to say, Hey, this isn't really what we were supposed to be doing. Is it? And again, as you know, standard oil was a new beast 150 years ago. And, and so, so are Google and, and so is Facebook and, and entirely apart from whether they, uh, in, in Facebook's case, uh, have, have been terrible for our democratic processes uh, and civil society and the rest, um, just economically, they are, uh, are not just our ancestors, my parents, if they were alive, would be amazed at, at, at my conservative Republican parents would be amazed at uh, what what has become of us and how we allowed this to happen. Right. What used to be considered a moderate Republican is now considered a progressive. Richard Nixon would be considered a liberal today. Um, oh, totally. I mean, one thing your book did make me think about is when I'm watching conservatives last week in an antitrust hearing rail about, you know, you're yelling at YouTube about someone being censored on Twitter and making nonsensical sort of arguments about uh, conservative voices being squelched. You know, I generally think of those as those, those are not serious people. Um, they're playing to some imaginary base, um, they're dumb, whatever it is. And now I'm thinking, well, maybe they just actually, what they actually are is uh, pro, they're anti-antitrust people. And what they really don't want is any sort of serious antitrust discussion happening anywhere. And whatever they can do to sort of throw dust in people's eyes and, and, and move them off that topic um, is actually what they're trying to do. I'm probably giving people like Matt Gates way too much credit, but it, I, uh, I, I think it's a you useful frame. No, I think you are giving Matt Gates and his ilk too much credit. There's a lot, as we know, there always has been, on both sides of the aisle, but a lot more on the right side of the aisle these days, stupidity of enormous proportions in Congress. But I, So he's stupid, and, and, and there is this stupid version of, of the basic prime directives of the economic right, you know, tax, no, no taxes 
no no government intervention of any kind, especially including antitrust enforcement. And so he, he, he knows those are true. He knows he must obey those. And so he just does. So, yeah, I, I think, I mean, that could change. I mean, they are a populist party now, too, of course, the Republicans. So populism is a dangerous substance. And it could suddenly uh, decide that, no, um, if we don't like Facebook or Google or the rest of them for other reasons, yeah, let's break them up. Um, so, Which is what you see William Barr saying out loud, by the way. He said, uh, yeah. you know, this the antitrust is a good way to go after these people whose political ideas we don't like. Yeah. He said that Which out is- loud. Yeah, it, it, which is extraordinary. And, and I would think that in if, if there were one dark room where the living evil geniuses gathered to make sure everything was going okay, they would be uh, perturbed by that kind of suggestion. Because, and, and they really have, even when they let the political game get out of control and, and get Donald Trump elected, which that room, if that notional room wouldn't wouldn't have preferred. Once you start saying, you know, I mean, apart from the horror of, you know, uh, the the kind of autocratic uh, state that that William Barr would give us, uh, I, yeah, as, as, as soon as you say no, antitrust is is aggressive antitrust enforcement is a good and desirable thing for any reason. Obviously, it can be used to by the left if and when a left regime is in power. I have other questions for you. I want to take a quick break so we can hear from sponsors. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The other thing that uh, I was surprised to start reading about in your book was was a really critique of nostalgia. Uh, and you're sort of arguing that we got here in part because uh, our we were sort of we weren't we weren't a naturally nostalgic country, um, and that folks on the right have used nostalgia to sort of play into that. But it's a new idea. It's not something we we sort of have always had. Uh, and then you sort of see nostalgia showing up in the 70s and 80s along with this conservative push. And you get to a sort of a stasis now where there's nothing new. Um, I guess there are two different arguments. One is a stasis and one is a sort of but, fondness but they for are, the past. But they are, it's a continuum. Yeah. Effectively. And so, but, so, but I, I just assume that nostalgia was just part of the human condition and that we always look back and thought about the good old days. And you're saying, no, no, this, it's, it, it shows up, it has shown up in the last couple of decades for a very specific reason because it, it's politically useful. Well, I, I would say it is nostalgia, just like magical thinking and, and exciting falsehoods and religion are all part of the human condition. 
then they, 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 in different places at different times, they become more extreme. And no, America was the land of the new. We, we, yes, of course, we liked our little bits of nostalgia. And, oh, look, Buffalo Bill, that's, oh, that's cute. Um, we, we had our moments of nostalgia. Who doesn't? But it was not so central to the culture, the pop culture and the culture of America, really, until we reached this sort of moment of maximum new, kind of discombobulating new in the late 60s and early 70s. And everybody said, hold it. Oh, let's really look back. Oh, look at those good old days. They were great. And that, again, nobody caused that, that, that uh, as I tell it, and I think it's true, was a reaction to what had happened in the late 60s significantly. Maybe it was also a reaction, just America being, you know, 200 years old. And that in, in country years, maybe that's middle aged and you turn mm-hmm. nostalgic, you know. Uh, but but the, the, that, that, you know, the morning in America theme of, of Reagan's election and reelection was all about using that new, and it was new wave of nostalgia um, to to get elected. And so it didn't basically, literally and implicitly saying, didn't you like it before there was a big government? Didn't you like it when we were just like nice working out in the fields and all of that stuff? They used nostalgia. They didn't create it, but they exploited it masterfully. And it has continued this this stasis, the, the lack of uh, the kind of, cultural change that used to be so obvious, you know, where, where each decade looked and sounded different, that, that has stopped. And I, and I do think again, not because the Cokes are, are that brilliant, but it does serve the general uh, idea and reinforces the idea that big change really isn't going to happen. It's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. Just get used to it suckers. So, uh, it, yeah, it, it, it was, I, I, I try not to ever use the term perfect storm, but, it, but it was a bit of a perfect storm where this, this, this plunge into nostalgia after the sixties, uh, was very, very useful and has been, has continued to be useful to, you know, the, the, the interests of, of the rich and powerful and, 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 giant corporations. I think a lot about the internet and and what I thought, what I used to think about the internet and how we think about it now. You're someone who spent a lot of time on the web and making websites and things like that. Um, why why hasn't the internet counteracted some of this? The idea that, I mean, that's a frontier, right? And, and, and you can do all kinds of things that previously you couldn't. You have access to all kinds of information and culture that previously was restri- uh, you couldn't get if you didn't live in a certain place. Why hasn't that pushed things forward and in a better direction? Well, it depends what you mean by push things forward, because we still, I mean, one thing is we still have a political system that is the same political system we had 50, 100 years ago, right? So so you still have to get Congress to pass laws and, and, and a government bureaucracy to, to uh, operationalize them and the, all of it. So that's one reason, obviously. Uh, you know, I would say... The, the you know there there's a lot of good news bad news aspects to what the internet has done and and certainly i would say as the pendulum maybe is swinging now away from this and there is actually for the first time in you know my lifetime really or certainly or in the last 40 years a a a serious economic left with at least existing in the vicinity of power and certainly in the democratic party um, I, I think the internet has enabled uh, that to happen. I mean, but again, wh- wh- what do we mean? What, push things forward? How? And and by the way, what, once you have um, 
uh, I mean, if, if we're talking about antitrust, I mean, no, Facebook and Google are not the internet. But, you know, Standard Oil was not transportation either, you know? I, and so I, it is not in, in any of those big companies' interests to think about the kind of radical changes that would now seem radical that weren't radical at all 60 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So that's part of it. It's it's tough. I mean, political change is tough. But then, as we've seen in the last few months, impossible seeming things can suddenly happen all at once where Congress and the government say, yeah, a few trillion dollars to keep the uh, the, 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 the things running and humming. Sure. Fine. Let's do that. So, uh, you know, I, 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 right now, if, if, if you said to me right now, like, has the internet solving the problems I'm talking about or, uh, been, or creating the problems that I'm talking about been more bad than good? I'd say, yeah, right now. But, uh, but I, but it, again, it's just, it's a, just a technology and, and, uh, uh, technology that can be used for communication and mobilization and has been used and is used very effectively um, by by the right for that. And so it can be, but I, I don't know what we expect, you know, it ain't magic. And, and I don't know how, how, I mean, there was all, obviously, as you know, there were all, there was all kinds of utopian that's, dreams of that's what the what I, could do. That's what I think ago. about, yeah, getting out of college and reading the first couple issues of Wired, Correct. having read William Gibson. The we're netizens. Yes, and 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 you still encounter that, especially if you go to Silicon Valley. That idea that that yeah. we're headed that way—it just seems yeah. much less realistic to the rest of us. Yeah. Um, so, what is to be done? Um, what is to be done is what looks like, as I say, what looks like radical change. Uh, you know, and and as you know, part of this this story that I tell in this book is I was I was a a, a complacent, affluent liberal centrist for many years. It was, it was working for me. I, you know, I, was, I wasn't a Rust Belt manufacturing worker. Um, and, and so I didn't have a, a, a red pill moment exactly, but over a period of years, I realized, wow, this has gotten screwed up. Why? How did it get screwed up? And I, I think I learned in detail how it did. So what is required is the long, hard slog of political change. And I think the story I tell in Evil Geniuses is useful in that way because look what these guys did, right? Look, look at the long game they played. It wasn't just about uh, this year or that election or 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 stopping. They early got stuff. together decades ago and said, "We want to we want to have courts that that reflect our political beliefs and let's work on that." And now they have it. Correct. No, I mean the the story of the Federalist Society and the right wing takeover of the judiciary and the law, which again I knew that headline, I knew that basic idea, but I I had no idea. How extraordinarily specific, strategic, and successful so quickly that was through very through very specific means. For instance, billions of dollars being given to all the top law schools to start new curricula and 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 parts of the law school that served this new Robert Bork Scalia uh, right wing paradigm. So it's it's yeah, it's incredible. And 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 when I say, I mean. As I say in the book, evil geniuses is still genius. They did a lot of stuff that that is really useful to look at and say, "Wow, this." this, this. So, if there is to be a redemption and and a change back to a society that is fair and functional and prosperous and and innovative and all those things for for everyone rather than just the top, um, we need we need political change and 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 
a change in sentiment. Um, it, so it's not just political change of this person needs to be elected or that person needs to be beaten. It is, of course, that. But it is this larger change. And you see it as they did it in the 70s and 80s to change elite opinion, change public opinion. And it's, it's a long game. And, and people just have to focus on that as a long game rather than as what we need to do November 3rd, for instance. So we're getting, we're getting close to talking about Trump. I'll stop with, talk about <laughs> Joe Biden first. So if Joe Biden wins, and I'm, I'm much more reticent to, to project that than, than I would have been four years ago, talking about Hillary Clinton, um, I guess that you could take two views of him. One is, oh, we're going to go back to the way things were four years ago, eight years ago. That's sort of his pitch. And, or you could argue that actually, if you look at his platform, you look at his coalition, he's actually what we would now call a very progressive candidate. Maybe he doesn't sort of want to be that, but that's who's aligning behind him. And so uh, a Joe Biden victory isn't just sort of like a, a relief from Trump. We could actually start moving in another direction. Uh, which do you think is more likely? I, I am hopeful. I am hopeful that he sees where his party has gone. And he's always a guy who doesn't want to be too far ahead of the center of his party, but doesn't want to be the old retrograde guy. So I think the 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 progressive movement of the Democratic Party behind him will have, I hope, the tendency to keep him moving in that direction. And and uh, you know, I mean Barack Obama his uh, himself ta- asked about, for instance, healthcare system and well, what do we want Medicare for all? What do we want? He makes the case not surprisingly, better than Joe Biden does about, yeah, what we could do in 2009 and 2010 was this. That was never the, the perfect thing. And let's keep moving toward toward the better. So I, I'm hopeful, uh, actually. I'm hopeful that he will not be, um, you know, that he, his job in winning the nomination was to say, no, Bernie, we can't afford that. Right. About what all... all but his job as president will not be that. I think his president and and, and it, what one has read about the this summit uh, meeting of the Sandersites with the Bidenites to work out a sort of essentially a platform yep. that they both were happy with sound from both sides like it went pretty well. So no, I'm hopeful about that. I'm hopeful that this awful time economically and in terms of public health will also be a big boost to the idea that government is not our and it need not be our enemy and government need not be incompetent and um, look look and at, has, uh, and has to be competent well and must be competent and and of course the incompetence of government was always has was always and is always and has always has been for 40 50 years crazily exaggerated by the right because it serves their interest not to have government uh, regulate environment their environmental impact and and all the rest now we're at Donald Trump time. I went back and looked at our at our transcript of our conversation, um, and everything there holds up. But no one, neither of us, said anything ridiculous. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about whether Donald Trump was in on the joke. Um, you thought that probably he wasn't at this point. Uh, you talked a lot about the influence of pro wrestling uh, on Donald Trump's worldview. Um, so we don't need to worry about sort of apologizing for for projecting <laughs> the the election wrong. Um, I am wondering now, nearly four years later. 
what you learned about Trump that you didn't know? And, and just because I'm a terrible podcast uh, host, I have not properly introduced you, but obviously you're the co-founder of Spy and co-founder of Inside.com. And for the purposes of this conversation, an early chronicler of Donald Trump uh, in the mid-80s when he was just a regional New York buffoon. Yeah. Um, you were on him early. As I realized, uh, as I said to somebody the other day, or wrote somewhere, I have now spent most of my life with a sideline of Donald Trump scholarship, which yeah, is- Normally I would start the conversation out with Trump, but I figured I'd give you a break. We'll yeah, talk about no, your book I appreciate first. that. So you're, the question is, how's, how's he different? Like what, or what, how did yeah, he surprise what, what, me? Yeah, what, 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 what didn't you get uh, four years ago that has now come into relief? Or is it pretty well, much what you thought you were gonna get? Well, no, I, I, with him, I, I, I mean, no, I can't say, yeah, no. I, I expected him to be this monstrous, uh, half-sane, moron freak. If you that is what a lot of us thought was why we thought he could not be elected because well, exactly. it was so clearly that right and exactly then so so I was st I still thought that there was a possibility that no it was like Hulk Hogan would take off the costume and be a normal ish guy still be you know the the bluster liar yeah. all the things not the guy you want to be president but he would exist in the world. Yes. <laughs> well, and that the, the the ongoing wish of the of the wishful comments by uh, people on television and in in the print media that oh he finally became presidential tonight. I mean, what, yes. what that should have ended after you know the, that State of the Union speech where people first said it, but they keep doing it because for a while, understandably, they just people couldn't believe like no, he's not going to be this unhinged all the time he's not really this unhinged so so i i thought i thought he was i've always thought he was mentally disordered i talked about that in when he was running for president and people said oh you can't, shouldn't say that and i talked about his his fascist instincts and people you're being ridiculous you're being hysterical um but uh i thought there was a possibility if he because he's not stupid i mean he well he is and he isn't stupid and that's a whole other conversation yeah. but I thought he would understand that there was a way to be popular and govern both as a bigot and xenophobe and racist, but a guy who does, in the Steve Bannon way, like do Medicare for all and build, spend trillions of dollars on highways and all that stuff, rather than be just the total uh, mentally ill uh, narcissist and all the rest that he is, and, and that that was really the totality of what he would be as president. I mean, again, I used to say my the thing that I didn't that always stunned me about Donald Trump from 1985, from the first time I ever heard of him, was I had never seen anyone in 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 life, in real life, who who was. Who, who needed attention, needed the attention of the media like you and I need water and air and food, right? I had never seen anybody uh, constructed like that. And and so I, I should have just tripled down on that and said, well, that, that's, that's going to be. It, being the most famous person on earth in my lifetime isn't going to satisfy him. And or if it does, he's just going to need to do keep doing crazy things to get more and more attention and professions of love and all the rest. So, yes, it's more extreme than I would have imagined outside of fiction. But it would have been if I had written a certain kind of novel about what a well, and in fact, I did write a certain kind of novel about what a Donald Trump administration would be like. 
I, yeah, I could have imagined this madness. No, I and, and I'm referring to a book I did with Alec Baldwin in 2017 called "You Can't Spell America Without Me." That is a, a memoir of Donald Trump's first year in office, and and I have him going insane at the end, more insane than he has in real life so far. So I I, I can't. I always get confused. Am I surprised but not shocked? Am I shocked but not surprised? I don't know. One of those. He, uh, I mean, what's, what we've been learning over and over and over is that, you know, he'll say something crazy and he might believe something crazy, but he fundamentally doesn't seem interested in the actual being president other than like the parades and being saluted and tanks and things like that. And so what you have then sort of operating in the background is sort of a lot of, to bring it back to your book, these evil geniuses, the, the Mitch McConnells of the world, who, uh, the, the, the Kochs of the world, who did not like Trump. Um, who actively campaigned against him during the Republican primary and have now sort of realized, oh, well, this we can do whatever we want as long as we're able to tolerate this odious thing he says or this terrible thing he says. And we really don't like the idea of federal troops being used to quell protest in Portland because that's that's just wrong. On the other hand, look at this tax, uh, the, this tax break we've engineered. So in some ways, the question I asked you at the beginning, this, this does sort of seem what the evil geniuses wanted. They didn't want this version of it, um, but they're happy to take advantage of it. You've put it beautifully and perfectly. No, that's exactly right. And of course, what we've seen for now... Uh, almost going on 60 years with the right, with the Republican Party, is this deal with the devil that they've made, that that my evil geniuses have made, that the, the economic right-wingers and the rich have made, starting in the 60s with the George Wallaceites and with the with the the uh, I don't like these the civil rights thing and 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 pandering with you know relatively speaking dog whistles at the beginning and fewer louder and louder whistles over the years. They needed they, they they required the political allies of the proto-Trumpists of all flavors and varieties, and that has they 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 made that bed and now they're lying with it in it with the ultimate grotesque version of that deal, which is Donald Trump. I mean, yes, they would prefer a Bush or a Romney or a respectable guy from the club to be their Marco their, Rubio for a little flavor any any version of that <laughs> yeah, exactly Marco they would love Marco Rubio uh, yes exactly um, but uh, here, here so they're dealing with this just as they had to deal with uh, you know they never had to deal with a president like this they've had to deal with 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 uh, mollifying and appealing to voters like this and 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 some members of Congress like this but never the the, the party and the presidency has gotten taken away from them yet. Yet, as you say, I mean, in terms of their bottom line, you know, low taxes and 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 the, 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 they get the judges. It's sort of the most successful presidency of their lifetime. Totally, and 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 the one that one hopes will lead to a reckoning where they are finally uh, where, where where this period ends and they they uh, are removed from effective power of our of our political economy. But yeah, no, th this is where it led, and it's it's not like. The, the idea that, that I mean, Donald Trump is a extreme and a freak, but he's extreme and a freak at the end of a, of a, of a trend line. I mean, it's, he, he didn't come from nowhere. It's just, it's just uh, you know, we all have chronic conditions and sometimes they get terrible and, and we develop a big lump on our arm and he's that. 
<laughs> I was hoping to leave this on a on an up, <sighs> not a not a lump on the arm. I will say this: um, this is a very heavy conversation we're having. This is a very fun book to read. Oh, thank you. It's very approachable. I, 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 I literally read it on a beach and next to a pool. You too, you you can also do it. Go buy Evil Geniuses. Go pre-order it, depending on when you hear this podcast. But it it should be widely available, even from monopolists like like Amazon. Thank you, Kurt Anderson. Oh, thank you, Peter. This was as great as I expected it to be, so thank you. Be well. Thanks again. That was super fun. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel, who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors, who let us bring the show to you for free. A bunch of more cool stuff is coming your way for free in the near future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Talk to you soon.